You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Team, March 1931 by Various. Beyond the Vanishing Point by Ray Cummings. Chapter 4 The Journey into Smallness. Glora, that. that was horrible. We stood again in normal size, with the wrecked dome laboratory around us. The dome had a great jagged hole halfway up one of its sides, through which the snow was falling. The broken bodies strewn around were gruesome. Alan repeated, Horrible, Glora! This drug, the power of it, is diabolical! Glora had grown large after us, had given us the companion drug. I need not detail the strange sensations of our dwindling. We were so soon to experience them again. We had searched, when still large, all of Poulter's grounds. Some of his men undoubtedly escaped, made off into the blizzard. How many we never knew. None of them ever made themselves known again. We were ready to start into the atom. The fragment of golden quartz still lay under the microscope on the white square of stone slab. We had hurried with our last preparations. The room was chilling. We were all inadequately dressed for such cold. I left a note scribbled on a square of paper by the microscope. With daylight, Poulter's wrecked place would be discovered. The police would come. Guard this piece of golden quartz. Take it at once, very carefully, to the Royal Canadian Scientific Society. Have it watched day and night. We will return. I signed it George Randolph. And as I did so, the extraordinary aspect of these events swept me anew. Here in Poulter's weird place I had seemed living in some strange, fantastic realm. But this was the province of Quebec in civilized Canada. These were the Quebec authorities I was addressing. I flung the thoughts away. Ready, Glora? Yes. Then doubts assailed me. None of Poulter's men had gotten large to fight us. Evidently he did not trust them with the drug. We could well believe that, for the thing misused was diabolical beyond human conception. A single giant, a criminal, a madman, by the power of giant size alone, could devastate the earth. The drug, lost or carelessly handled, could get loose. Animals, insects eating it, could roam the earth gigantic monsters. Vegetation, nourished with it, might in a day overrun a great city, bearing it with a jungle growth. How terrible a thing if the realm of smallness were suddenly to emerge! Monsters of the sea, marine organisms, could expand until even the ocean was too small for them. Microbes of disease feeding upon this drug. Alan was gripping me. We're ready, George. Yes, yes, I'm ready. This was not largeness we were facing now, but smallness. I thought of Babs, down there with Poulter, beyond the vanishing point in the realm of the infinitely small. They had been gone an hour at least. Every moment lost now was adding to Bab's danger. Yes, I'm ready, Alan. Glora sat with us on the platform. Strange little creature. She was wholly calm now, methodical with her last directions. There had been no time for her to tell us anything about herself. Alan had asked her why she had come here and how she had gotten the drugs. She waved him away. 
On the journey down. Plenty of time, then." "'How long?' Alan demanded. "'Not too long. If we are careful with managing the trip, what you might call ten hours.' And now, as we were ready to start, she told us calmly, "'I will give you each your share of the drugs, but them you take only as I tell you.' She produced from her robe several small vials a few inches long. They were tightly stoppered. The feel of them was cool and sleek. They seemed of some strange polished metal. Some of them were tinted black, while the others glowed opalescent. She gave each of us one vial of each kind. "'The light ones are for diminishing,' she said. "'We take them very carefully, one small pellet only at first. Alan was opening one of his, but she checked him. "'Wait! The drug evaporates very quickly. I have more to say first. We sit here together. Then you follow me to the white slab. We climb upon the little rock.' She laid her hands on our arms. Her blue eyes regarded us earnestly. Her manner was naive, childlike. But I could not mistake her intelligence, the force of her character stamped on her face for all its dainty, ethereal beauty. Alan, she smiled at him and tossed back a straying lock of her hair which was annoying her. You pay attention, Alan. You are very young, reckless. You listen. We must not be separated. You understand that, both of you? We will be always in that little piece of rock, but there will be miles of distance, and to be lost in size. Strange journey upon which now we were starting. Lost in size? You understand me? Lost in size. If that happens, we might never find each other, and if we come upon the Dr. Poulter and the girl he holds captive, if we can overtake them. We must, I exclaimed, and we must start, Glora. Yes, now. She showed us which pellet to select. They were of several sizes, I found, and, as she afterward told us, the larger ones were not only larger but of an intensified strength. We took the smallest. It was barely a thousandth part of the strength of the largest. In unison we placed the pellets on our tongues and hastily swallowed. The first sensations were as before, and, familiar now, they caused no more than a fleeting discomfort. But I think I could never get used to the outward strangeness. The room in a moment was expanding. I could feel the platform floor crawling outward beneath me, so that I had to hitch and change my position as it pulled. We were seated together, Alan and I on each side of Glora. My fingers were on her arm. It did not change size, but it slowly drew away with a space opening between us. Overhead, the dome roof, the great jagged hole there, was receding, lifting, moving upward and away. Glora pulled us to our feet. We had better start now. The distance is so far, so quickly. We had been sitting within five feet of the stone slab with its little four-inch high railing around it. A chair was by the microscope eyepiece. As we stood swaying, I saw that the chair was huge, and its seat level with my head. The great barrel cylinder of the microscope slanted sixty feet upward. The dome roof was a distant spread three hundred feet up in the dimness. This gigantic room—it was a vast arena now. Alan and I must have hesitated, confused by the expanding scene a slow, steady movement everywhere, 
everything was drawing away from us. Even as we stood together, the creeping platform floor was separating us. A moment passed. Glora was urging vehemently, "'Come, you must not stand!' We started walking. The railing around the slab was knee-high. The slab itself was a broad, square surface. The fragment of golden quartz lay in its center. It was now a jagged lump nearly a foot in diameter. The platform seemed shifting as we walked. The railing hardly came closer as we advanced toward it. Then suddenly I realized it was receding. Thirty feet away? No, now it was more than that, a great thick rope, waist-high, with a huge spread of white surface behind it. "'Faster!' urged Glora. We ran and reached the railing. It was higher than our heads. We ran under it and out upon the white slab, a level surface larger now than the whole dome-room had been. Glora, like a fawn, ran in advance of us, her draperies flying in the wind. She turned to look back. "'Faster! Faster! Or it will be too hard a climb!' Ahead lay a golden mound of rock. It was widening, raising its top steadily higher. Beyond it and over it was a vast, dim distance. We reached the rock breathless, winded. It was a jagged mound like a great fifty-foot butte. We plunged upon it, began climbing. The ascent was steep, precipitous in places. There were little gullies, which expanded as we climbed up them. It seemed that we should never reach the top, but at last we were there. I was aware that the drug had ceased its action. The yellow rocky ground was no longer expanding. We came to the summit and stood to get back our breath. And Alan and I gazed with awe upon the top of a rocky hill. Little buttes and strewn boulders lay everywhere. It was all naked rock, ridged and pitted, and everywhere yellow-tinged. Overhead was distance. I could not call it a sky. A blur was there, something almost but not quite distinguishable. Then I thought that I could make out a more solid blur which might be the lower lens of the microscope above us. And there were blurred, very distant spots of light, like huge suns massed by a haze, and I knew that they were the hooded lights of the laboratory room. Before us, over the brink of a five-hundred-foot cliff, a great glistening white plain stretched into the distance. I seemed to see where it ended in a murky blur and, far higher than our own hilltop level, a horizontal streak marked the rope-railing of the slab. "'Well,' said Alan, "'we're here.' He gazed behind us, back across the rocky summit, which seemed several hundred feet across to its opposite brink. He was smiling, but the smile faded. "'Now what, Glora? Another pellet?' "'No, not yet. There is a place where we go down.' It is marked in my mind. I had a sudden ominous sense that we three were not alone up here. Glora led us back from the cliff. As we picked our way among the naked crags, it seemed behind each of them an enemy might be lurking. Glora, do you know if any of Dr. Poulter's men have the drug? I mean, do they come in and out here? She shook her head. I think not. He lets no one have the drug. He trusts not anyone. I stole it. I will tell you later. Much I have to tell you before we arrive. 
Alan made a sudden sidewise leap and dashed around a rock. He came back to us, smiling ruefully. "'Gets on your nerves, all this. I had the same idea you did, George. Might be someone around here. But I guess not.' He took Laura's hand and they walked in advance of me. "'We haven't thanked you yet, Glora.' "'Not needed. I came for help from your world. I could not get back to my own, and I followed the Dr. Poulter when he came outward. He has made my world, my people, his slaves. I came for help. And because I have helped you needs no thanks. But we do thank you, Glora." Alan turned his flushed, earnest face back to me. I thought I had never seen him so handsome, with his boyish, rugged features and shock of tousled brown hair. The grimness of adventure was upon him but in his eyes there was something else. It was not for me to see it. That was for Glora, and I think that even then its presence and its meaning did not escape her. "'Stay close, George.' "'Yes.' We reached a little gully near the center of the hilltop. It was some twenty feet deep. Glora paused. "'We descend here.' The gully was an unmistakable landmark open at one end, forty feet long, with the other end terminating in a blind wall, smoothly precipitous. We retraced our steps, entering the gully at its open end, and walked its length. Glora paused by the wall which now loomed above us. A pit is here, a hole. I cannot tell just how large it will look when we are in this size. We found and stood over it, a foot-wide circular hole extending downward. Alan abruptly knelt and shoved his hand and arm into it, but Glora sprang at him. "'Don't do that!' "'Why not? Is this it? How deep is it?' She retorted sharply, "'The Dr. Poulter is ahead of us. How far away in size, who knows? Do you want to crush him and crush that young girl with him?' Alan's jaw dropped. "'Good Lord!' We stood with the little pit before us, and another of the pellets ready. "'Now,' said Glora. Again we took the drug, a somewhat larger pellet this time. The familiar sensations began. Everywhere the rocks were creeping with a slow, inexorable movement, the landscape expanding around us. The gully walls drew back and upward. In a moment they were precipice cliff walls and we were in a broad valley. We had been standing close together. We had not moved except to shift our feet as the expanding ground drew them apart. I became aware that Alan and Glora were a distance from me. Glora called, "'Come, George, we go down quickly now!' We ran to the pit. It had expanded to a great round hole some six feet wide and equally as deep. Glora let herself down, peered anxiously beneath her, and dropped. Alan and I followed. We jammed the pit. But as we stood there, the walls were receding and lifting. I had remarked Glora's downward glance and shuddered. Suppose in some slightly smaller size Babs had been here among these rocks. The pit widened steadily. The movement was far swifter now. We stood presently in a great circular valley. It seemed fully a mile in diameter, with huge encircling walls like a crater rim towering thousands of feet into the air. We ran along the base of one expanding wall, following Glora. 
I noticed now that overhead the turgid murk had turned into the blue of distance. A sky. It was a faintly sky-blue, and there seemed a haze in it, almost as though clouds were forming. It had been cold when we started. The exertion had kept us fairly comfortable, but now I realized that the air was far warmer. It was a different air, more humid, and I thought the smell of moist earth was in it. Rocks and boulders were strewn here on the floor of this giant valley, and I saw occasional pools of water. There had been rain recently. A realization came with a shock of surprise. This was a new world. A faint, luminous twilight was around us. And then I noticed that the light was not altogether coming from overhead. It seemed inherent to the rocks themselves. They glowed very faintly luminous, as though phosphorescent. We were now well embarked upon this strange journey. We spoke seldom. Glora was intent upon guiding us. She was trying to make the best possible speed. I realized that it was a case of judgment as well as physical haste. We had dropped into that six-foot pit. Had we waited a few moments longer, the depth would have been a hundred feet, two hundred, a thousand. It would have involved hours of arduous descent if we had lingered until we were a trifle smaller. We took other pellets. We traveled perhaps an hour more. There were many instances of glorious skill. We squeezed into a gully and waited until it widened. We leaped little expanding caverns. We slid down a smooth yellowish slide of rock like a child's toboggan, and saw it behind and over us, rising to become a great spreading ramp extending upward into the blue of the sky. Now up there little sailing white clouds were visible, and down where we stood it was steep twilight, queerly silvery with the phosphorescence from the luminous rocks, as though some hidden moon were shining. Strange new world! I suddenly envisaged the full strangeness of it. Around me were spreading miles of barren, naked landscape. I gazed off to where, across the rugged plateau we were traversing, there was a range of hills. Behind and above them were mountains, serrated tiers, higher and more distant, an infinite spread of landscape. And as we dwindled, still other vast reaches opened before us. I gazed overhead. Was it, compared to my stature now, a thousand miles, perhaps even a million miles up to where we had been two or three hours ago? I think so. Then suddenly I caught the other viewpoint. This was all only an inch of golden quartz, if one were large enough to see it that way. Alan had been trying to memorize the main topographical features of our route. It was not as difficult as it seemed at first. We were always far larger than normal to our environment. The main distinguishing characteristics of the landscape were obvious, the blind gully with the round pit, for instance, or the ramp slide. We had been traveling some three or four hours when Glora suggested a rest. We were at the side wall of a broad canyon. The wall towered several hundred feet above us, but a few moments before we had jumped down it with a single leap. The drug we had last taken had ceased its action. We sat down to rest. It was a wild, mountainous scene around us, deep with luminous gloom. We could barely see across the canyon to its distant cliff wall. The wall beside us had been smooth, but now it was broken and ridged. 
there were ravines in it, and dark holes like cave-mouths. One was near us. Alan gazed at it apprehensively. "'I say, Gloria, I don't like sitting here.' I had been telling her all we knew of Poulter. She listened quietly, seldom interrupting me. Then she said, "'I understand. I tell you now about Poulter as I have seen him.' She talked for five or ten minutes. I listened amazed, awed by what she told. But Alan suddenly interrupted her. "'I say, let's move away from here. That tunnel-mouth or cave, whatever it is—' "'But we go in there,' she protested. "'A little tunnel. That is our way to travel. We are not far from my city now.' Perhaps Alan felt what a generation ago they called a hunch, a premonition the presage of evil, which I think comes strangely to us more often than we realize. Whatever it was, we had no time to act upon it. The tunnel-mouth which had caused Alan's apprehension was about a hundred feet away. It was a ten-foot, black, yawning hole in the cliff. Perhaps Alan sensed a movement off there. As I turned to gaze, from the opening came a great hairy human arm, then a shoulder, a head. The giant figure of a man came squeezing through the hole on his hands and knees. He gathered himself, and as he stood erect, I saw that he was growing in size. Already he was twenty feet tall compared to us, a thick-set fellow dressed in leather garments, his legs and bare arms heavily matted with black hair. He stood swaying, gazing around him. I stared up at his round-bullet head, his villainous face. He saw us. Stupid amazement struck him, then comprehension. He let out a roar and came at us. End of chapter 4。Thank you everyone for being patient for these these、uh, current and upcoming episodes. Uh, had a rash of sickness and、uh, family issues currently. And yeah, so、uh, I, I now present you with、uh, March and early April on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. We would also like to welcome Gretchen Martin、uh, to the cast of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. She is our, I don't know, I, I, I guess、uh, one of our, our, our other horror movie experts and.、Uh, Comics uh, and uh, uh, manga and、uh, a lot of、uh, other stuff and yeah no no、uh, so welcome Gretchen and check us out on People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos at pgttcm pgttcm dot com at pgttcm Dot com,、uh, just search any of those. You'll find us eventually. <laughs> We're on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube,、um, Instagram, and Gretchen's on Gretchen is Weird, I believe, on Instagram. So check her out.、Uh, Dave's Corner of the Universe is Dave's website. Uh, he's not linking anything from us to him, but we link to him. So check out his past articles 
Give him some love. Maybe he'll write some more stuff. All right. Thank you, everyone. And uh, if you like this show, share it. Let other people know that you like it. Uh, let me know if you like it. Uh, you can contact us at pgttcm at gmail.com. If you S-A-S-E us a envelope, we will send you some stickers or something. And yeah, so thank you. Contact, uh, message me for uh, uh, address. And uh, we'll talk to you in the future. And uh, keep, keep, keep it weird. Stay squiggly. And uh, yeah.